We are continuing our study in the book of Romans, and today we will be looking at Romans chapter 7. But before that, let's review what we have covered so far. In Romans chapter 1, we've learned that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And as we move towards chapter 3, we learn the bad news of condemnation. All of us lack the perfect righteousness that God demands. We have sinned before God and we have fallen short of His glory. And because of that, we are condemned to face death and to face God's eternal judgment. But here's the good news of justification. God made a way to justify us or to make us right with Him. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can now be made right with God and we can now experience the righteousness that God demands and we receive this free gift of righteousness through our faith in Christ. And now we move to the third section of Romans, which is sanctification. You see, our salvation comes into uh, three stages or three phases. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification. And what is justification? Justification is the act by which God declares a sinner as righteous based on faith. Justification is a one-time event during that moment of faith when he or she believe in Christ. And this is just the starting point of the Christian life. But the next stage of the spiritual journey is what theologians call sanctification. Sanctification is a lifelong process. It is by which the Holy Spirit of God transforms our hearts so that we can become more and more like Christ. And he enables us to live a life of obedience and righteousness. Again, this is a lifelong process and we will spend 99% of our Christian life in this stage. How about glorification? Glorification is something that is still in the future for all Christians. It's a one-time event wherein we would be fully transformed into the image of Christ. And when this happens, we will receive resurrection bodies from God and we will be transformed forever free from sin and we will spend eternity with our Lord. Now let's go to the uh, overview of Romans chapter 6 to 8. These three chapters is all about our sanctification or the believer's sanctification. Here in Romans 6, Paul discussed the drastic change that happens when a person is saved. Before we have this old life of sin, but now we have this new life in Christ. Before we were slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to God. In chapter 7, Paul says, we used to live under the burden of the law, and now we are united with Christ, and we will look more closely into that in a while. In chapter 8, Paul says, we used to be controlled by our sinful nature, but now we are controlled by the Holy Spirit and notice the, the role of the Trinity in this uh, sanctification process. The Trinity worked perfectly in our sanctification. God is our new master, Christ is our new husband, and the Holy Spirit is the new spirit that empowers us to live righteously for God. And what a beautiful picture of unity and harmony within the Trinity. Now let's focus on our topic today in Romans chapter 7, the believer's new normal. Paul anticipated some questions about what he said in chapter 6. So here in chapter 7, Paul will try to answer three questions on sanctification. And as Paul answers these three questions, we will learn the believer's new normal after we have come to the knowledge of faith. Here in chapter 7, Paul discussed this triangle, the believer, the law, and sin. These uh, three have uh, different relationships and these are the three questions that Paul would discuss about our sanctification. What are those? What's the relationship between the believer and the law? What's the relationship between the law and sin? And what's the relationship between sin and the believer? So let's look into this 
one by one. The first, what is the relationship between the believer and the law? Verses 1 to 3. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that that law applies only while a person is living? Now, what is this law? In chapter 7, the word law appeared 24 times, and it's the dominant theme or keyword that runs throughout this chapter. And here, the law refers to the Torah or the Old Testament commands in general, and the Ten Commandments in particular. The law is important because it reveals to us God's requirement for His holiness and righteousness. And now, Paul explains what's the believer's relationship between the law and our relationship after we have been justified by faith. What is our relationship with the law now that we have been justified? And Paul used this illustration of marriage. He said, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he lives. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. And what's the point of this illustration? There are two points. First, death cancels all obligation. Death cancels all obligation. The law is binding only while a person is alive. And that is why during wedding vows, we say this phrase, till death do us part or until both of us shall live, as long as we both shall live, until death do us part. Why? Because the death of the spouse means the end of the marriage covenant. And the second point is that freedom from one relationship would allow the person to establish a new one. When, a, when your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. That's the significance of law and death. Death cuts or stops all obligation. And that leads us to verse 4, which is the key verse in this passage. It says, So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ, and now you are united with the one who raised him from the dead, or to the one who is raised from the dead. In this first part, Paul answers this first question. What's the relationship between the believer and the law? Answer? We died to the law and we are now married to Christ. We died to the law and we are now married to Christ. You see, when we are under the law, it's like being married to the most demanding husband. Nothing that you do pleases him. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, it's never enough because our husband, the law, is a perfectionist. And you see, he's always right at the time. And he is perfect and he knows he is and he doesn't mind telling us about it, that he is perfect. That is what it's like living under the law. We do our best to live up to God's standard of holiness and righteousness. But the bad news is we are not perfect. And, and again, the law demands 100 perfection, but the sad news is we are not perfect. And it is not enough for us just to, um, to fulfill 80% or 90% of the law or of the Ten Commandments. God requires us to meet it 100% all of our days, every time, every day, every second, every minute. Now here's the point. Living under the law is like living with a perfect husband. But despite our best effort, we can never be good enough. So instead of experiencing life, it brought about death. And that is the bad news. But here's the good news. We died to the law. And notice the difference here. It is us who died to the law. And it is us who have been freed to establish a new relationship 
Again, Romans 6 tells us that we have died with Christ and we have been baptized unto his death. Our death ended our marriage to the law and we have been freed to marry our new husband and that is Christ. Romans 7, 4 tells us we have been united with Christ and we have been joined and we have become one with him. Again, to become a Christian is to say I do to Jesus and to put our faith in Christ is to enter into a new marriage covenant with our Lord. And that is the great news that you and I receive as believers. Now think about it. What kind of husband is Christ? What kind of husband is our Lord Jesus? You see, he's always loving, always forgiving, always accepting, always encouraging. And he is the exact opposite of our first husband. But here is something amazing. Christ, our husband, is also perfect. He is the perfect son of God. And he married us despite uh, when we were still unlovable or uh, unwanted and we are still imperfect. And that is the goodness of God. Now, what does it mean that when we die to the law? It means that we are no longer required to fully obey God's law so that God would be pleased to save us or to accept us. In other words, we no longer need the law so that we can um, be justified before God. Why? Because as we learned last time in Romans chapter 1, Christ became the source of our justification. Christ perfectly obeyed the law for us. You see, Christ did not only die for us, he also lived for us. Christ not only sacrificed himself on the cross, but he also fulfilled the perfect demands of the law. And that is what Christ did to redeem us. Now let's go back to verse 4. What's the result of our marriage to Christ? Paul says, as a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. Other version says, in order that we may bear fruit for God, Paul says that Christ marrying us made it possible for us to bear fruit of holiness in our lives that pleases the Lord. And note that this fruit is our fruit for the Lord, for God. You see, our union with Christ enabled us to live a life that pleased God. And this is what Paul highlighted in the following verses. He said, When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desire uh, were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produce a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. And note the contrast here. When we're still unsaved, we were controlled by the old nature and married to the law. And what's the result of that? It produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. That's the bad news. We bore fruit that leads to spiritual death. But praise God, that's not the end of our story. The good news is that we are now married with Christ and we can serve God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, here's the point. As believers, here is our new normal. We died to the law and Christ is our new husband. And therefore, let us love him and honor him. Let us love Christ and let the love of Christ compels us to live for God and love others. Again, we died to the law and Christ is our new husband. And therefore, let us love him and honor him. So friends, think about your life. Does your Christian life reflect your old marriage to the law or your, your new marriage in Christ? Does your Christian life produce a fruit of, that leads to death? Or does it now produce fruit that leads to spiritual life? May the Lord help us. Now let's go to the second question about sanctification. What's the relationship between the law and sin? 
You see, Paul anticipated a possible misunderstanding about what he said in the first six verses and in which he shared that the heavy burden of the law ex- that we experience may lead us to the wrong conclusion that God's law is bad and evil. And this is what he said in verse 7. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Paul said, of course not. In fact, it's the law who showed my sin. I would never have not known coveting uh, that it, it's wrong or if the law had not said you must not covet. You see, Paul says, the law is not sinful. In fact, it's the opposite. Look at how he described the law. Down in verse 12, he said, but still the law itself is holy and his commands are holy, right, and good. Again, listen to that. He said, the law is holy, right, and good. And do you know why it's holy, righteous, and good? Because the law reflects the very character of the one who is holy, righteous, and good. And that is our Lord God. He is the one who is the giver of the law, and the law reflects his character. And that is why the Ten Commandments are a great way to know God, to know who he is, and to know his character. Through his law, he tells us what is good and evil. And through his law, we see God's holiness and righteousness. And not only that, the law also shows us how God loves us and how he wants to do good for all of us. Sadly, many Christians today think that God's law no longer applies to us. And they said that it's because that we are now in the new covenant, that we are now the people of the New Testament. But that is wrong thinking. And this reality is what Paul addressed during his time as well. Paul corrected their error by emphasizing several things about the law. And what are those? Paul said, first, the law reveals the fact of sin. He said, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. It was the law that showed my sin. I would never have not known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. You see, the law tells us what is right and what is wrong. It's the standard that defines what is sin and what is not. For example, just look at these words. Which ones will you consider a sin or which ones are not? Is it abortion, cursing, using drugs, rape, sacrifice, forgiveness? You see, using worldly standard, you may say that abortion is not wrong. Using worldly standard, you may say sex outside marriage is okay. And using worldly standard, you may say contentment or humility is foolishness. But when we use God's law, it will help us to determine which is right and which is wrong, which is sinful and which is not. So may the Lord help us. Next, Paul also tells us that the law reveals the power of sin. Verses 8 to 10. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Notice the two phrases here. Sin seizing the opportunity in verse 8 and sin springing to life. Both of these are military languages. It's a picture used uh, to show um, someone waiting in ambush. Paul says, when the law taught me about sin, then suddenly that sin in me ambushed me. And when the law said, do not covet, my heart started coveting. That's actually what happened in Genesis 2 and 3. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, the Lord commanded um, 
man, you may not freely eat from any tree of the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God already uh, set the limits and the boundaries. You may eat everything except for this forbidden fruit of the tree, uh, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what did the serpent do? The serpent deceived the woman by questioning God's command. And he tried to focus Eve's attention towards uh, eating the forbidden fruit. Sadly, Eve focused only what God prohibited and she has forgotten all the free things that she can have. And that's the deceitfulness or the power of sin. When God says no, sin would say, okay, this is something that God says no, then I will tempt you to say yes to this thing. That's the power of sin. But then it also shows us that the law reveals the deceitfulness of sin. And that is in verse 11. It says, Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. Again, the phrase took advantage is a military language. You see, sin is a deceitful killer. And you know what? It used something good. And that good is the law. It used something good. And it misuses the law to bring about our death. And it's out there to kill us. Now, in what ways does uh, sin deceive us? Here are some examples. You see, when sin is tempting you to be greedy, when sin is tempting you to be unfaithful to your spouse, when sin is tempting you to do things that are not, not good and hurting towards others and offensive towards God, sin will deceive you by saying these things. Sin will tell you, go ahead, you deserve to be happy. Just give in, don't worry, no one will find out. Just do it. You can handle it, and you can stop anytime you want. And sin will tell you, don't believe in God. He's a killjoy. He is withholding what is best for you. Dear friends, if you hear these voices of sin and temptation, be very careful, because sin is crafty and deceitful and persuasive. Again, remember, sin is deceitful, and it is out there to kill you and destroy you. So may the Lord help us. Also, the law reveals the seriousness of sin, verse 12. But still, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy, right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what is good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Again, Paul shows us that sin that the law reveals the ugliness of sin. Sin is out there to destroy and kill us. And so don't play with it, don't minimize it, and don't even tolerate sin. Again, let's go back to the second question. What's the relationship between God's law and sin? The answer, God's law reveals sin and sin misuses God's law. But remember, the law is good. And since the law is good, God calls us to delight in it and embrace it wholeheartedly. And that is to be our new normal. As the psalmist tells us, how blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who in his law he meditates day and night. You see, the psalmist understands that God gave us his law and his commands for our good and not for our groaning. It is for our benefit. Now, some say that the law is already passe. It only applies to the Old Testament and no longer applies to us because Christ already uh, revealed, is revealed in the New Testament. But that is somehow a wrong conclusion in a sense. Let me explain why. You see, according to the Jewish traditions, there are 613 laws in the Torah. 
and we can sum it up, uh, simplify this loss into the Ten Commandments. But when Jesus came, he summed up the law into its core essence with these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when Jesus did this, did he cancel the law? Of course not. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. Christ came to accomplish the law down to its last smallest letter. And since we are now united with Christ, we have the capacity to also fulfill the law that pleases God. Now, when Paul gave a summary of what it means to obey the Christian life or to obey God's law, he referred back to the Ten Commandments. Look at this verse. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. That's part of the Ten Commandments. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to this. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, here's the key. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul says that obeying the Ten Commandments is how God's people love one another. When we love, we fulfill the Ten Commandments. And when we follow the commands, we fulfill the law of love. So brothers and sisters, let us love God by keeping his commands. Let us embrace the law. Let us delight in the law. And so that we can live out a life that honors the Lord. As the Apostle John tells us, God's commandments are not burdensome. So therefore, let us delight in the law of the Lord. Now let's go to the third section or the third question on sanctification that Paul addressed. What is the relationship between the believer and sin? Let's note again our new normal as believers. We have a new master and now we are married to Christ and now we have uh, Christ is our new husband and we now have God's spirit in us to help us, to empower us to live holy lives. And that is great, but that, does it mean that we will no longer sin? Will there be total freedom from sin? Of course not. Paul addressed that issue in these next verses. He said, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself for what I want to do. It's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate, but if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good, so I am not the one doing wrong. It is Sin living in me that does it. Again, what's the relationship between the sin and believer? Answer, we are at war. As believers, our struggle is real in us. Our struggle with sin is real and we are at war. And so God calls us to fight it. Note again what Paul says at the starting verse in 14. It says, um, this is something that the theologians say that Paul is describing or perhaps describing the life of an unbeliever. And others say that Paul is describing uh, someone who is a Christian but an immature one. But if you look closely at this passage, I believe this is something that Paul is saying about his own personal experience as a mature believer. Notice how Paul repeated the words I in this passage. And the verb tenses that he used here are no longer in the past tense but now in the present tense. Again, Paul is describing his autobiography, his own spiritual journey in his own life after he, know, he, uh, after he knows the Lord. And what did he say in verse 15? 
says, I don't really understand myself for what I want to do, what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. You see, if there's one word that could describe Paul's experience, it's the word struggle. Struggle. There's a battle within Paul that he himself experienced, and there's a personal war within the members of his internal being. Now, Paul is describing his experience and also our experience generally as Christians after coming to know the Lord. And that is our new normal. And why is there a struggle within us? Why is there a civil war within every believer? Look at what Paul says in verses 18 to 24. He says, verse 17, So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Verse 18, It is my sinful nature living in me. Verse 20, But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Now, Paul says here in verse 20, he is not trying to make an excuse that he cannot do anything about it. He is just emphasizing the reality that there is something going on in his, uh, in his inner being. Now, verse 22 to 23, it says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind, and that power makes me a slave to sin. That is, is still within me. And verse 25, it says, In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Now, here's the point. Paul says, we have these two natures that wage war against each other. And that is our sinful nature and our spiritual nature. And there's always a tug of war between the two. So, dear friends, know this truth. As believers, our problem is not outside us, but inside us. Our problem is not out there, but in us. You may say, yes, um, our greatest enemy is Satan. Our greatest enemy is the world. Our greatest enemy are the people or the sinful people living around me or living with me at home. That is my greatest problem. But no, Paul says, that may be true to some extent, but that is not the whole picture. The truth is our greatest problem is sin living in us. We may escape Satan. We may escape other people trying to tempt us or trying to hurt us. We may escape the world. But it's very difficult to escape something that is already in us. And that is the reality of our sinful nature. Paul says that sin living in me is one of our greatest problems. And this is what the theologians call the indwelling sin. And until we understand this reality, we cannot win over this war against sin. Now here's the picture of our hearts after coming to Christ. On one side is our sinful nature. It drives us. It drives our thoughts, our choices, our deep desires, our emotions toward what is wrong, towards what is sinful, and towards what is self-serving. On the other side is the spiritual nature. Our spiritual nature drives our thoughts and emotions and desires towards things that are pleasing to God and things that are loving to others. And these two natures are always in luck, um, in a constant battle and always have this tug of war. So every decision you make, results in a battle between these two natures. Will you decide on behalf of your sinful nature or will you decide on behalf of your spiritual nature? Now think about your life. Can you relate with Paul's frustration? You want to do good, but, and also you want to do loving, but you don't do it. And worse, you do the exact opposite. You do the things that you don't want to do. You want to keep your eyes and thoughts pure, but you end up looking at things that you're not supposed to look at. You want to show kindness to your spouse and speak gently with your family members, but you end up reacting in anger and speaking hurtful words. 
You desire to serve others, but you end up using people to serve your own goals and agenda. You desire to prioritize God and to seek first his kingdom, but you end up building up your own kingdom as you pursue more money, power, and pleasure. That is the reality of our battle with sin. There's a constant battle within us. Friends, if this is your experience, don't lose hope or don't be discouraged. Why? Because Paul says, despite our feeling of failure, we can still win this battle. And here's the key that will help us in our struggle. It says, Paul says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul shows us how to fight this fight as we struggle with sin. First, he tells us we need to be honest. What a wretched man I am, Paul says. Friends, we need to be honest with our struggles. Unless you admit, unless we are honest, we can never receive help. Diba? Yun naman ginagawa natin eh. Kung may sakit tayo, tsaka tayo nagpapatingin sa doktor. If we, are, if we admit that we are sick, that's the time that we will be asking for help. And that is the reality of our spiritual struggles. If we say that, yes, we need help, and that's the only time we would really seek help and that we would really come to the Lord and seek the help of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, don't deny your struggles. Be honest and admit. And admitting is, your, is the first step so that we can experience lasting change and freedom from sin. Now think about your life. Is there a sin in your life that you need to admit, that you need to confess? Talk with your leaders. Talk with your accountability group. You may talk with us as, um, and we want to help you. Being honest Repent and confess your sin. That is the first step towards experiencing victory over sin. Next is we need to be humble. Paul says, who will set me free from this body of death? You see, Paul admitted that uh, he cannot save himself. Now, what's the difference between honesty and humility? Well, honesty says, I have sinned. Humility says, I cannot save myself. I need help. And Paul acknowledged this reality. He could not free himself and in the same way, let us not stop sin by our, by our own sheer willpower. We need to completely depend on, on Christ. We need to be humble and say, Lord, I cannot do it. I need you. I need you. And that leads us to the third point. We need to wholly depend on Christ. Verse 25, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news for all of us. God has given us his provision to help us win in our struggle with sin. Think about it, the grace of God in this, in this verse. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, in our justification, we were undeserving of God's goodness and grace because we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have been objects of his wrath. But God justified us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gave us that gift of justification, and we can receive that free gift through faith. But here also, in our sanctification, God continued his work. God continued to save us and to make us more and more like Christ. And he is the one that God used to, to help us be in complete, uh, uh, to overcome sin, to be in complete victory over sin. And that's what we will learn next time in Romans chapter 8. But the point is, Christ did not just uh, God did not just uh, give us Christ for our justification, but Christ is there also to help us in our sanctification. And that's the goodness and the greatness 
of God. And in the end, Christ will be there also in our glorification. That's the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us praise God for that. Again, the good news is that God gave us this provision through Christ to help us win against our battle against sin. And it is not a formula or a technique, but the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through his presence, through his love, through his power, through his resurrection power that we can overcome. So therefore, let us fully depend on Christ so that he will help us to experience a life of victory over sin. At this point, I want to leave you with this practical tool that you can use to fight off your sin. Remember, we are in a constant battle with sin. We are at war with sin. And how do you win a war? You need to have a battle plan. To win the war, you need to have a battle plan. And as we draw out our plan, God calls us to rely on the Holy Spirit. And God calls us to use his word as our weapons for offense and defense. Now, again, here's the simple tool that you can use. We can call this um, the hate journal. It's based on Romans chapter 12, verse 9. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. You see, as Christians, it's okay for us to, to preach about the love of God, the love of Christ, loving others. But we, got, but we need to also to preach something about hating sin, hating the sin that hurts God and hurts others, because this is the reality of, of our spiritual life. God hates sin so much, and until we understand the truth, we can never live out to be like Christ and be like God. And I pray that, God's, that God will help us to transform our hearts to start really hating sin and taking sin seriously. And again, you can use this tool, the hate journal, and uh, let me give you this, this acrostic. Remember, for you to fight off your sin, use this acrostic, H-A-T-E. So think about what happened. How did you act? What were you thinking? Basically, it's what are the things that you want, you crave for, what you desire. And what is excellent or praiseworthy based on Philippians 4. So let me give you an example to illustrate this. Let's say you had an argument with your spouse. So use this uh, hate journal to analyze, to understand what happened, uh, why did you end up in sinning, and what can you do next time to, to, live out, to live your life for Christ. So start with H. What happened? Well, you may say, um, be specific. My spouse and I argued about finances. And how did you act? Well, I shouted back at my spouse when he or she shouted at me. And what were you thinking? What, were, what is it that you want at the time? What is it that you desire? What's your craving? Well, you may say, uh, I just want my spouse to respect me, or I want to win the argument and prove my spouse wrong. Now, that is the sinful nature, but then how can you overcome sin? Next time, here is what you need to do. We need to live uh, out uh, the life of our spiritual nature. And what is that? Instead of, uh, when you have a specific argument uh, with your spouse, instead of shouting back at your spouse, you may say, I will be gentle and humble. Like Christ, I will be gentle and humble with my spouse like Christ. And that is based on Matthew eleven twenty nine. Or you may say, instead of wanting my spouse to respect me, instead of wanting it so much to win the argument, you may say, I want to honor God and glorify Christ regardless of what happened. It doesn't matter if my spouse respect me. It doesn't matter if I win the argument. But what's important is I want to honor God and glorify Christ. And again, this is based on God's word. I don't have to win. That should be our thinking. And what is excellent? This is something that we can do uh, more 
to, to live out Christ-likeness. I will exercise patience. Instead of shouting, I will exercise patience. I will live out the Spirit's fruit of kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, this is based on God's Word. And what else can you do? What is excellent? You may say, I will overcome evil with good. I will die to myself and love my spouse sacrificially, even if my spouse does not respect me. I will be ready to forgive my spouse and not keep a record of her offense. Again, these are based on the Bible verses. Now, did you get the point? The point is we need to have a battle plan. We need to be intentional. We need to have certain tactics how we can fight off sin. You see, sin, winning against sin is not just something that happens automatic. We need to work hard. We need to pour out blood, sweat, and tears. We need to fight and exert effort as we rely on God and as we use His Word as our weapons for offense and defense. And I want to highlight this thing also. Notice the answers in the right column, in the spiritual nature column. Everything that you write here is basically based on God's law and His Word. It is based on God's good law. And so God calls us to use uh, his word to fight off sin as our weapon for offense and defense. Let us use God's word to fight against sin. Let us use his word, the sword of the spirit, for offense and defense. And as we do this, let us rely on God and let us be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now just imagine what would happen if you start doing this with every sin that you do, whether you have your argument, uh, with your spouse, with your kids, whether you are tempted to, do, to look at something that you're not supposed to look at when you're tempted to be greedy or to be discontented. Imagine what would happen, how your life would change. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, use this tool, exercise your faith, produce holy sweat. And that is the only way that we can overcome sin. Christ already did his part. God already did his part. The Holy Spirit is there for us, ready to do his part, but God calls us to start doing our part. The question is, what will be your choice? What will be your choice? Again, may all of us remember this. Uh, the hate journal, what happened? How did I act? What am I thinking? What is excellent? May all of us live a life that battles against sin. Let us fight our struggle because our enemy is real. Now, in chapter 7, we learn about our struggle against sin. And then in Romans chapter 8, Paul will show us how we can experience full victory with sin. So I encourage you to read it in advance so that we can learn more as we study it the next week. Now, let's review and summarize what we've covered today. Here in chapter 7, Paul discussed this triangle, the relationship between the believer, the law, and sin. And What's the relationship of a believer? What's the believer's new normal after we have been justified with Christ? And Paul answers these three questions on sanctification. What is the relationship between the law and the believer? The answer, we died to the law and Christ is our new husband. Therefore, let us love him. We died to the law and Christ is our new husband. Therefore, let us love him. The second, what is the relationship between God's law and sin? God's law reveals sin. But sin misuses God's law. Nonetheless, the law is good, and therefore let us delight in it, for it is for our good. And the last, what's the relationship between sin and the believer? As believers, we are at war with sin. Our struggle is real, so let us fight it. Let us hate sin. Let us fight against sin, and let us use God's word and rely on his power as we fight off against our sinful nature. 
Again, as followers of Christ, God calls us to live out our new normal. Let us love Christ. Let us delight in God's law. Let us battle against sin. Let us fight against sin. Let us delight in God's law. And let us love Christ. May the Lord help us. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Indeed, your law is good. It is pleasing to the eyes. It is something, Lord God, that benefits us. Thank you, Lord. You, your word is trustworthy. Your law makes us wise and simple. Your commands are right and just, and it only reflects your goodness, your faithfulness, your holiness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for the message of the Apostle Paul, that the reality that we are in, that uh, after you have justified us, Lord God, in Christ, we are now married to you. And thank you, Lord, that you have given us this new reality and enable us, Lord God, to be faithful to you as we know you, as we walk intimately with you. May you find us faithful. Thank you also for letting us know the reality that uh, your law is good despite the burden, the, the difficulty of uh, not being able to obey it fully, but through Christ, you have fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so now we thank you because you have given us the capacity to live a life that honors you and pleases you as we obey. Thank you, Lord, and help us to obey so that we may experience your goodness, your favor, and that we may reflect your goodness, your righteousness, your holiness. Thank you also for letting us understand that in reality that we are fighting against sin, our sinful nature. It's something that we are grateful for because we are not alone, because you are with us in this battle. The fight may be difficult. It may take time for us to win this, but that is something doable. It is not impossible, but it, that is something that you call us to, to do every step of the way, every day, every moment of our lives, every decision that we make. Help us, O oh God, to be faithful and to rely on you, to rely on Christ, to be honest and humble and just wholly depend on you. Thank you, Lord. Help us to use the things that we learned today, not just to be informed and just not just to fill our heads with theological knowledge, but more importantly, help us to apply this in our lives. Help us to really hate sin as you hate it. Help us to really live a life of holiness that you delight in, that you, you desire for each one of us. More importantly, may you empower us to be more and more like Christ. Thank you, Lord. And Father, as we come before you today, we pray for those of us who are sick. We ask, O Lord, for your healing mercy and grace. Make us whole. Provide for our needs. Lead us to the right doctors. Help us, Lord God, to, to be revived in our bodies. Give us hope. Help us, Lord God, to taste your resurrection power, Lord God, in this side of life. Restore us, O God. And may you use our stories, our healing, to be a... Uh, to be a vehicle of, uh, of testimony, of, to proclaim your goodness and righteousness and, and greatness to the people who are yet to hear you. Help us, O God. We pray for our families. Continue to provide for our needs. Protect us, O Lord. Pray for our broken relationships. Help us to forgive, to restore. Help us to, to reflect Christ-likeness in our families and our relationships. We pray for our businesses, continue to help us, Lord, navigate through these challenging times, especially the, the challenges that we face, the inflation, the ra uh, rising gas prices, the, the uncertainty 
of the future, the fragility of the economic situation and the impeding uh, global conflict, Lord God. We pray for uh, we pray for guidance, clarity, and just help us, Lord God, uh, in, despite these challenges, help us, Lord God, to have peace, to have discernment, how to move forward. And as a church, we pray that you help us to be faithful in loving you and following you, to embrace that calling that you've given us, that may you find us faithful to know you fully, to love others well, and to be faithful in making disciples. We pray, O oh Lord, for our country. We thank you that we are now in a transition. We thank you for our newly uh, inaugurated president. We pray, O oh Lord, that you bless our president, President um, Bongbong Marcos. Lord, in your sovereignty, you have appointed him to be our leader during this time. May you bless him, O Lord God, with wisdom. May you transform his heart. May he know you and, and really encounter you to fear you and honor you and bow down to you, to your lordship, to your sovereignty. May you help him understand that his power and authority is something that you have given him and entrusted to him, not for his own, but for the good of others, for the service of the Filipino people. And we pray, O oh Lord God, not just him, but the entire cabinet, the other government officials whom you have uh, appointed, Lord God. We pray that you help them, Lord God, lead with uh, love, with righteousness, with purity of intent, and with the genuine desire to only to serve the people and to honor you. And help us, O oh God, to be together uh, as one country, to to rise up, Lord God, and, and revive us, O Lord God, not just economically, but revive us spiritually so that we may be truly a Christian nation that honors you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for how you are working in our lives. Continue to enable us, empower us to live faithfully and become more and more like Christ in our family, in our workplace, in our communities, in our school, in our private life, and as we live this world. May you alone be honored and glorified in our lives, O oh Lord. Thank you so much. And as you bow your heads, let me bless you with this benediction. As you fight your battle against sin and pursue a life that honors God and reflects Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord grant you his favor and give you peace. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you once more for joining us. May God's word empower us and encourage us to live more for God and love others. God bless us all. See you next time.